Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Welcome to the fifth and final episode in our five-part podcast series on the Showtime program, The Trade a docu-series providing a front-row seat to the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected. We invite you to binge, listen, and share this series to make a difference in the opioid epidemic. First, binge on all five episodes of The Trade. They're available for free at cover2.org. That's cover2.org. Next, listen to the podcasts with their backstories for each episode and the related programs that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic. And finally, Share those with all the people that you know that you feel may benefit from this program. And that is how we all can make a difference in the opioid epidemic. In this final episode in our series on the trade, we revisit the Franklin County Sheriff's Department to talk about investigating drug dealers and the HOPE Task Force. Next, we'll hear about quick response teams and why they work so well to get people into treatment from Dan Malloy, one of the originators of QRTs. Later, we'll revisit Jen Walton from Atlanta to get an update on Skyler's story, and we'll talk with Richard Confer in Dayton to hear more about Brittany's success. We conclude this series with some final thoughts on what we learned from the trade. Once again, we begin this episode with Pagan Harleman, executive producer of the trade. In episode five, we sort of circled back to the um, sheriff's department in Columbus, and we uh, met another detective, actually a sergeant, who you see in episode one briefly and in episode two, and that's Sergeant Nate Smith, and he's the head of the HOPE task force. And, um, you know, we, we really thought at some point in the series it was important to touch on kind of treatment and to touch on the things that Minard, uh, Chief Minard, and that uh, Sergeant Nate Smith have been doing as a result of this epidemic, because they both told us that their um, attitudes towards addicts and towards the epidemic had changed, you know, as a result of sort of their exposure and meeting people. And they had tried to change um, how, how their team approached it. You know, and so what Minard said is he said, in some ways, this epidemic is going to create a revolution in law enforcement. You know, and, and Minard has a background as a homicide detective. And he said, you know, as a cop, you know, you want to go out and arrest people and, you know, solve cases and this, this and that. And the epidemic is very different, you know. And as you see, like sometimes there I mean, the stories we heard, some of the things we, we didn't even get to, to see is we talked to some EMTs who would come across, you know, a mother and her daughter who's pregnant using together. You know, this is something that we didn't touch upon, but for many people, the point of entry to heroin is their family. It's their siblings. It's even their parents or their kids. So, you know, there's a lot of really challenging things that law enforcement sees. And at some point, Minard and and Sergeant Nate Smith got together and they partnered with 
um, Southeast, um, you know, which is a, a health organization with social workers, and they came up with this approach for the Hope Task Force, where they they do follow-ups within 30 days to fatal and non-fatal overdoses, you know, to see if they can give people treatment to help them get treatment. And we really wanted to focus on that. So episode five, you know, with law enforcement, we see some of the new approaches that they're taking um, in the face of this epidemic. And in Mexico, we wanted to highlight um, this activist, Mario, and sort of what he was kind of trying to do in the face of all the violence and things that are happening um, and the experience that he had in his family. And then we went back to Skyler and his family, you know, to sort of see he was... Uh, beginning to pursue treatment, and we wanted to follow that story and sort of touch, give people an idea to see, okay, well, what, you know, these addicts that we met, what's happening to them now? Turns out it's common for people to go missing in Mexico, and most families never get closure. You know, in Mexico, a, a number of people have died as a result of the drug war, but there's also many who've been missing, and they're simply categorized as missing. Their bodies have never been found. The large, large, large majority of cases in Mexico are not prosecuted, you know, or followed through on. So there's there's a lot of issues in Mexico around sort of how law enforcement proceeds. Um, there's not necessarily the resources or the wherewithal to follow through on many investigations. Um, so many people go missing, and, you know, there's a lot of mothers who for years will go looking for, you know, their kids and never give up on them and, and, and talk about a need for closure. And so, you know, we very much wanted to um, reach out and touch upon the stories of some of the activists there who are speaking out against the violence, who are... Um, you know, asking, you know, law enforcement and other people to follow through in these cases, you know, to let people know where their families are. And so Mario is an activist. His brother disappeared a, a couple of years ago, and he goes to a march for the 43 students on the anniversary of their death. He went to the march in Mexico City, and that's when he talks about his brother. And his brother, you know, disappeared, just disappeared from their town, and they never found him. They don't know where he went. Um, so the 43 students is significant because that, um, you know, they went missing and nobody's really taken responsibility for it. And that crystallized in Mexico, this, um, sort of what was happening, how the level of violence and people going disappeared and missing and nobody taking responsibility and law enforcement not following through. So the 43 students has become a cry for many people in terms of accountability. Like we need answers. What's happening? You know, why are people just going, you know, sometimes they're murdered and you find out about it. A number of journalists have been murdered in Mexico. It's one of the most dangerous places to be a journalist. But, you know, for people in small towns like Mario, sometimes they have a family member missing. They go, they ask, they ask year after year after year, nothing happens. They never know. And so what he says is he just wanted some closure. He just wanted to know, even if he just found the bones or the body, he wanted to know what had happened to his brother, you know, and, and be able to, because otherwise, you know, they lay awake at night. What if he's suffering somewhere? You know, I need to help him. It's, it's like an open-ended thing. And he's one of those people. Next, Pagan speaks about Chief Miner's response to the opioid epidemic and how it's evolved. I mean, we thought it was great to see... Um, how uh, Nate Smith and his team worked, you know, and and that, you know, in some ways, as Minard says, they have become social workers. You know, we, we saw them when they would go do a follow-up visit and help somebody drive to get treatment, you know. And, um, I mean, look, they don't, they don't want to just do investigations into fatal overdoses. You know, they don't just want to show up when somebody's died. You know, they want to stop this, you know, in, in any way they can. Um, you know, and, and that's sort of where the... the 
the brainchild came through. And also Minard had formed some partnerships with different groups, you know, and social workers. And, you know, he really, his whole, Minard's motto is he wants to think outside of the box, you know, and I think, I think that's something that law enforcement across the country should think about, you know, just arresting people is not working. It's not working. I think when people share what's really going on inside of them, it's powerful. And so even though a lot of people we encountered were in a lot of pain, it was powerful to hear their stories. And I feel privileged to be a part of that. And I also think you have to find hope. No matter how hopeless things are, you always have to find hope. And I hope that, as Jen Walton says, where there's life, there's hope. Where there's breath, there's hope. So for all these addicts, for anybody who's struggling with this, even for the people in Mexico, you know, there, there's always hope. There's always a future. Next, Pagan shared what wound up on the cutting room floor and didn't make the final version of the trade. Well, one thing I would want to highlight is that there are many, many people we talked to who we didn't have a chance to put into the show. So many amazing parents and um, even addicts and other law enforcement. And we learned from all of them. We just didn't have a chance to you know, put, um, follow everybody in terms of our filmmaking. And you know, there's a, a lot of stories um, open injection sites, you know, there's other places um, that are very worthy. And I hope that this series will just begin to, you know, open up people's interest in into this subject and that, you know, people who are struggling with this in the inner city, you know, that, that there'll be interest in other places that this is not taken to be a comprehensive look, but just a sort of a beginning look. Now we revisit our discussion with Detective Jake Smith from the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. I would say that a lot of the time what we have is uh, we'll go once we go into a scene and we respond on a scene, the first roadblock I would say that we have a lot of the times is that um, especially parents, they want to try to overcome the stigma of addiction. They want they don't want to have their child viewed in that that negative light. Um, and a lot of the times we'll see, parents or family members clean up the scene, meaning taking evidence away from uh, the area that would allow us to go further within the investigation. So for us, um, we see people dealing with addiction every single day. This is what we deal with, uh, whether it be from an overdose or just being in contact with people because they know, you know what we're doing with the Hope Task Force. So I'd say the biggest roadblock that I, w- I always try to tell family members um, is that you don't have to worry about the stigma. It's, we, we understand that this is probably one of the hardest things uh, people have to go through. And the only person who understands being um, addicted to drugs such as heroin or fentanyl is the person that's living in that addiction right then and there. You know, um, and I, I would say also with the the cases being time sensitive, we have it's one of those hurry up and wait kind of things. When we go into a scene, we're trying to quickly identify the source of supply or the dealer. Um, but once we get to a certain point, we have to wait for a toxicology report to come back from the coroner's office. And that toxicology report is the determining factor, really, if we're going to go further with a case for prosecution on the charges of like involuntary manslaughter or corrupting. I asked them how families could help and not hinder their progress in busting drug dealers. There are also parents that are, um, for lack of a better term, vigilanteism, uh, where they would want to handle the investigation themselves, figure out who it is. Um, they've reached out to the drug dealer. They know who it was. Say, I'm coming for you. 
um, you know, send send text messages, go to their house, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, that puts them in a very dangerous situation themselves, and it it also um, gets rid of the surprise factor that we have as far as conducting investigations. Them not knowing what happened actually serves us. Uh, uh, it helps us out a lot. Um, I guess that's really all I want to say. Mm-hmm. The less the dealer knows about the investigation, mm-hmm. the better, yeah. um, especially in the early stages. So um, those are some of the barriers that we deal with. I asked them about the takeaways of this program. I think, uh, you know, while the series is, it does a great job of, of painting the picture of really the bleak, the bleakness of the opiate epidemic, there is a lot of good work that's going on. Uh, there is a lot of success stories um, there are a lot of people that are, uh, you know, successfully completing treatment and recovery, um, especially through our, uh, our partner at Southeast. Um, a lot of the reason that that, um, you can't really focus on that a lot because it's a very private matter between the people that are going through that, that recovery and that treatment story. And that becomes a very protected and private thing between the patient and, the and the, uh, uh, healthcare center, uh, so in this case sure. southeast. So a lot of that can't be shown. So while there is a very bleakness, uh, or, you know, to the opiate epidemic, and 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 it seems you know like um, an unwinnable battle, there is a lot of good stuff going on and a lot of uh, a lot of victories, personal victories for families that are going on right now that not that may not necessarily be shown in that documentary. Next, Chief Minard talks about the Heroin Overdose Prevention Education Task Force, or HOPE. What we started paying attention to uh, a few years back is the uh, trajectory of overdose and overdose deaths here in central Ohio. And so really it wasn't necessarily a new concept. We had worked with um, some of our partners in the past on some isolated cases. Uh, We had worked with uh, the treatment side of the house or second responders, if you will, and we'd had some success in the past. And so when we're looking at ways that we could address the opiate epidemic and that upward trajectory of overdose deaths, uh, we reached back out to some of the partners that we had worked with in the past with the idea of putting together the HOPE Task Force, more of a, um, Sergeant Smith always hates when I use this, but more of an ideology as opposed to a true task force where everybody's working out of the same office, but, but, but more of a concept of we're all working for the same goal. Um, and so we, we, we partnered with uh, Southeast and um, Adam H., which is a, a large funding uh, source here in Central Ohio. They fund a number of different uh, uh, programs, both from addiction, but also mental health and that uh, co-occurring uh, situation that exists there. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's really the mindset behind it. And then uh, took the concept to um, some of the great people that that are already in our office doing great work like Sergeant Smith and Detective Smith and Detective Edwards. And there's a couple of other folks that contribute to that task force as well, but uh, just really you know, gave the vision to them. And so they have taken the concept of Hope Task Force and really exceeded my expectations. Um, they, they've done tremendous work. Uh, these are tremendous people that really care deeply about the issue and about their community and trying to do something um, to change this horrible epidemic. I think just as we, we started to develop this, and this, this is a, um, a very fluid task force as it, as it goes, we just try to adapt to, to what the issues are um, presently. Um, 
you know, we just realized that, you know, it, we tried to hit it from both the supply and the demand side. Um, we, we concentrated so much on hitting the supply side over the past, you know, years that I've been involved in, in the Franklin County Drug Task Force. And, and that's kind of, you know, what, what I was saying, you know, we're taking 30% more uh, heroin off the street, 30% more people indicted as I was working on those stats. But then you see almost in a parallel, the overdose death rate is going on along with it. So if we're using, you know, the preservation of life as a, uh, meter to gauge, I guess, success and how we're doing, we weren't doing very good. So we, we, we needed to try and figure out a way um, to at least, you know, fight it a different way. So we just, uh, we had all the tools here. We just needed to, to develop the partnerships with, with the healthcare and treatment side. Uh, instead of treating people who are, you know, struggling with the, with addiction uh, as criminals, treat them as victims uh, and then go after the dealers even harder. Uh, that way you're trying to take away the supply side um, and the demand side uh, and do, we're doing everything that we can. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what else we do, you know, what else to do. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a big problem. Um, uh, the, the only thing we can think of is to use the law to hold the dealers more, even more accountable, uh, uh, you know, higher penalties for what they're doing. Um, and uh, at the same time, try to take away the demand side. So you're taking the money away from the dealers and, and, and get those people who are struggling with addiction help. Chief Minert talked about how the opioid epidemic can one day be put to an end. And so the more that everybody gets involved um, from a business standpoint, from the community standpoint, from the governmental standpoint, law enforcement, everybody, I think that, uh, you know, once we all kind of join forces here in uh and approach this thing together that uh, hopefully we'll be able to get out in front of this. So hopefully that's what the project does is really just bring more awareness and, and open some eyes up to the possibilities. Once again, here's Dan Malloy to talk a little bit about quick response teams and why they work. The concept was initiated in late 2014, and we worked through all the the legalistics of it with HIPAA and things of that nature and partnering agencies and identifying quality partners and to kick off in July of 2015. What it is, is a, it is a partnership between police, fire and the paramedic EMT service, as well as a addiction counseling specialist that respond and follow up to any overdose that occurs within our community. Um, the goal as over time has been to follow up within three to five days. That's when we've had the most success in transitioning the, the, uh, the victim, so to speak, to treatment. And the reality is it's a simple practice of compassion, empathy, and humanity. And so at this point, they've overdosed. They nearly died. And what we've found, what you've learned over time, is that is the best time, one of the best times, to reach out to them and encourage them to get the help that they need. Um, so there's a window there that provides us the opportunity to get into um, the family unit and let people know that there are people that care about them and there are resources available to them that they probably didn't know about or that there are people that are willing to go the next level of support when it comes to getting them through and finding the resources that are necessary to get them help. So somebody overdoses in the community and within a week they're visited at home by this three-person team. What happens there? 
Well, there's a lot of a lot of things going on. The the you know the picture of the police officer and the firefighter. They're they're driving a unit that is marked both police and fire, and it's identified as a quick response team. It's a visual representation to the community that the community is as in Corrine is working, and we're not forgetting, and we haven't forgotten about this disease or what its impact is on families and neighborhoods and communities. So it's a visible representation of the partnership that's out there. So that's one piece, and it pulls up to the door, it pulls up to the front of the house, and the officer knocks on the door and the family member or the, or the victim answers the door. And we say, you know what? We were here last night. We were here two days ago and we saved your life either with Narcan or, you know, we learned that there was a problem. And we brought this tremendously talented expert that knows just the right people and the right things to do to help you and your family move through this disease. And she's right here. And we also brought a peer navigator who's someone that's gone through your situation, who's sat in your seat, walked in your shoes, and they're here to help you as well. And we then transition it to them, and the police and fire kind of stand back. And they talk with the family and work through those entities while the experts start talking to those folks that are suffering and letting them know and getting the releases signed and doing all the things that are nature, you know, and, and the triage and the assessment of the patient and determining what's the best next step for them. What percents are home, and actually do you engage the first time around? Well, not many, um, but we don't give up. The fact of the matter is we will keep coming back, and we've learned little things along the way that, you know, business cards aren't necessarily the most personal. Um, They're used to a very sterile environment when it comes to people being, treating them as human beings. They feel... uh, less than normal their esteem is less their self-confidence is down they're not treated well exactly and the reality is we learned because we ran out of business cards we wrote a handwritten note and put it on the door and it was well received so the team started just using handwritten notes it made them using their name and writing that we were here please call us and those kind of things gained steam because it felt human and uh but we won't stop um we might take four or five times to get to somebody or somebody might not be ready yet. But you know what? Their family may be ready. The, the mother, the husband, the wife, the children might be in a state of need and we'll work to provide resources to them while the person suffering with the addiction is still trying to find their place. So there's work to do within the teamwork that might not necessarily be driven towards the treatment of that particular person, but that family still might need it. So there's a lot of things working at the same time. So what percent of the people that you engage actually make it into treatment? Well, the last data before I left um, for retirement was July of 15 through March 31st of 17. We had seen 82% of the people we saw within three to five days reach treatment. And people ask me, well, what does success mean to you? And success, the answer to me was the things that I had the ability to control, things that I had the ability to work with and impact. And that is making a commitment to the community and to our residents and the families that live there that we're going to do something to this for this and we're going to identify the victims and work with them and we're going to work with the families etc what happens after they get through treatment into treatment is i don't have any control over that whether they stay or whether they continue those are things up to them and their families but we're also there with for the families and we're there for those men and women when they return from treatment 
to be support providers, to be assistants, because um, we've had folks show up at our firehouses, stop a police officer on the street, come to the police department, um, stop by our community resource center, which is what we house our our operations out of. It's a satellite station for the police department and stop by on a regular basis to see the team when they're working. So we've enabled those relationships to let them know that we're not just a one stop or one time entity. We're there for them for the long haul, whatever they need. And we committed initially that we would spend a year with them after we engage them. And we realize now going almost in two and a half to three years is there's no time constraint to this. We're talking about human beings. We're talking about relationships. We've had a couple of folks that have been with us since the first, since July of 15 and they're with us and they're, they're working hard and they're in recovery. It's a tough battle, but the team and the specialists from the addiction services council have been with them and they're, they're successful. So there is no time. We don't cut anybody off. It's part of the nature of the business. So we've learned that you just you just work with people as they need it and provide the resources as they're available. And, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of showing up and providing a resource and being there for someone to to talk about how difficult it is. And, you know, police officers and firefighters, paramedics, people don't look at them in that realm. And the reality of the initiative was built on the fact that people look at police and fire and have since probably they were young at a young age as someone that can turn to for help. And that in the basic form is why we do it this way. And we are there for people and make a difference. And it's a problem solving philosophy and, it, and it's proven to work. And but it's about the people and the leadership associated with the initiative to make sure that it's driven and given the opportunity to be successful. I asked Dan how they achieve such a high success rate of getting people into treatment. Well, I think it comes back to partnering with the right end. It has nothing to do with anybody with anybody else's partner is, you know, the folks that we partner with were street level social workers at their heart at the when they started. And, you know, they when I sat down with the group at Cincinnati Addiction Services Council, Nan Franks, the CEO, and she just looked at me and said, this is you're taking away the barriers that most people have to get here, i.e. phone minutes, bus tokens the ability to leave their children, things of that nature, to come to a particular brick-and-mortar facility, us going to them and providing resources and, and talking with them and triaging and assessing them there and building those relationships. She said, this is going to be successful, and that's before we ever even started. And I think it's that willingness from them and then an openness and an understanding from law enforcement and from fire that – We've been doing a lot of different things over the years, and they just weren't working. We haven't stopped doing all the things we were doing before, i.e. arresting, investigating, doing all the police work that's necessary, and responding and using Narcan and doing the things that were necessary to save lives. But while all those things are going on, we're problem-solving this and being more proactive and engaging. And we've seen reductions in crime and reduction in overdoses and things of that nature, which is kind of uncommon in this current climate because most communities are seeing increases. So, you know, we're, I think it's about the people that are engaged and the willingness of the leadership to say, you know what, we're still going to do our jobs. We're still going to work over here, but we're going to do something differently because what do we have to lose? So Nan Franks is really, and her team, are making a concerted effort to remove those barriers. Absolutely. So that it's possible for someone to get into treatment. And I think that that's really key. That and I think it is as well. I think it's, you know, it's relationships that, you know, Nan's been in the business for 40 years. 
there's a lot of relationships built within the treatment providers and those folks to, to pick up the phone and call. And those are the difficulties. Is it a week? Is it two weeks? Is it two days to get someone into treatment? We also had an entity, a uh, very well-known doctor, Dr. Sean Ryan from the Cincinnati area, Northern Kentucky area, put one of his treatment facilities in Colerain because of the willingness of our community to be proactive. Um, so he put a, a outpatient treatment facility and willing was willing to partner with the QRT to provide same day access. That's that's not that's not the norm, but we accepted that and he's treating, you know, a thousand patients a month and providing a resource that maybe other communities don't have, but I'm not gonna complain about it because it was the partnership of the community to say we're going to do something that led this business, this doctor to say, hey, let's let's build a facility in Colerain and provide resources to Western Hamilton County or whoever needs to get there. And it's been a tremendous assist. I asked Dan, what's next for the quick response teams? You know, one of the big things when we started the quick response teams, it was one day a week. We didn't know what we were doing. I'll be honest with you. It was like I threw this against the wall and hoped that it was because we were tired of watching all the tragedy and we decided we were going to do something and, and then it's working. What's the next step? The next step is to put out, be out there more days a week because that window of three to five days, you're missing it when you're only out there every seven days. If somebody overdoses late on the evening you worked, there's going to be, so you're, you're not going to have the success that you're going to have. So we need to get out there more. So to be clear here, it was basically you were out on the road one day a week, your team was. Yes. And it was a half a day that they're on the road. So they do the planning session and then they hit the road a half a day, maybe a little bit more. Than yeah, that. it's about that because they meet in the morning, go through the reports, identify their people that maybe from the last week that they didn't find, so we need to go back out and look for them, and then they need somebody coming back from treatment, so there's somebody else there, and then there's the new overdoses. So the workload is pretty significant, especially a few years into it. It's not just new overdose folks. It's folks returning from treatment, people still in recovery to stop by and check. So your workload expands, and then you want to hit this window for the new overdoses, you need to get out there. So now is it Tuesday and Friday, which puts you to three day, five day week. That's what they're working now. But in reality, it would have been nice to have a team that was working five days a week, 40 hours a week that was available for all the things that are necessary, i.e. the follow-up, the counseling initiatives, the community education pieces that way. That's kind of the vision moving forward. Once teams get into a position where they're they, they're making a difference and they're having success. What's the next step? It's to be out there more days. And then there's this thing called active outreach or predictive analysis. Um, our police and our fire, they know who the families are. They know who the users are. They've been dealing with them. What if we waited, we st- stopped waiting until they overdosed to engage? Why do we have to wait till they die to engage in theory? Let's actively outreach them Maybe your success rate goes down, but maybe you look at it differently. Instead of the post-overdose follow-up, maybe it's the pre-overdose follow-up, and you look at, you know what, someone, there's a window there that's provided by the overdose that makes people take a moment, take a pause to think about what's going on. But we can engage families, we can engage the folks living and suffering in this lifestyle to say, you know what, here's resources, here's Here's all the things that are necessary. When you're ready, we're here for you. So how would predictive data be able to help with that? Well, what the, the predictive analysis are really a lot of smart people and much more smarter than I that can look at the social networks and the, the relationships that someone living in this lifestyle has 
and do their analysis. And that, that really kind of dumbs it down, but that's kind of for me, is it looks at and analyzes all the relationships and all the contacts and all your connections within your world and makes a determination who would be next for the next overdose based on behavioral patterns and factors associated with all those within your world to say, you know what, Dan Malloy, based on what's going on in your world, you're you're key, you're going to come you're going to have an overdose you're going to overdose here shortly and um, it gets us a chance to get out there and and show this and this has been proven with the city of Cincinnati they did it within they did gunshot reviews and they looked at that kind of analytics and they were able to predict gunshot victims and they had quite a bit of success I don't want to speak to the numbers because that'd be unfair to those who are truly doing it but from the outside as a community outside of Cincinnati looking at those people involved was, that was unbelievable information using that same kind of analytics putting it into this piece it makes you pause and say that's exciting because again we're not waiting till someone overdoses and then you have to wonder do we get to them in time to save them all those factors there we get to them beforehand and allow start the relationship building look at us as not the enemy but a partner and, and provide the, the smart people, the Addiction Services Council, the peer navigator, put them into their lives ahead of the overdose. Overdoses go down. Hospital visits go down. Narcan distribution goes down. Police and fire service is spent on proactive measures, i.e. other things going on other than overdose response. There's a lot of trickle down that can go into this that can positively impact the community. Next we visit once again with Jen Walton to talk about her family's role in Skylar's recovery. I admire her courage in putting her story out there, so it's, it's difficult to ask some of these questions. So, Jen, in episode one of The Trade, you were very involved in Skylar's recovery, and it appeared that you managed, you know, pretty much of everything down to the medication. It seems as though... You know, from an outsider looking in, it, it looked kind of like uh, maybe you took a little bit more ownership of his recovery than he did. So in retrospect, do you think that that was the case maybe? Um, I absolutely think that was the case. You know, I I claim to be in recovery as well as both of my children, and, and my recovery is trying to save or, or trying to stop saving um, my kids and fixing them, you know, I'll never stop trying to save them, but I, I'm on a constant battle to fix them. And I think what I've learned over the years and I battle with daily is working um, Skylar's program harder than he is willing to work. Um, so I, I've definitely been guilty of that. <laughs> well, as a, as a parent, you know, it, it goes against every fiber of your being when you hear tough love and distance yourself and cut them off um that that just goes against everything you've ever learned or known from a um a parent's perspective so it's it's a true battle um and it's very difficult to distance yourself he was at the extension he was at several um different sober living environments treatment facilities i mean you know this disease is an equal opportunity destroyer it knows no boundaries and we go through many, many iterations of Skylar, you know, being being tired or exhausted from the battle because it is a battle. You know, these kids are fighting daily for their lives, um, as are the parents. Right. Yeah. So it is a battle. And 
and it's an up and down thing. And what you may have seen between episode one and five is just a different phase. And we've been through many phases and I drift back into the take control, try to fix your child. Um, and then out of I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I need space. Well, with the extension there, uh, he met with them. It looked like it was on a Friday, wasn't it, that he met with them? And then, it was. And then, so he got approved for the program, but then he had to wait. Yes. All the way till which Monday. Is, which is very difficult at best. Um, a lot of families have absolutely exhausted their resources, their um, emotions, their, um, their lives on helping their kids or or supporting their kids it's an exhausting battle um and this was on a friday and he did have to wait two days to get in um he finally did get in um but it was short-lived once again robin Starr, family coach joins us in conversation with jen so jen looking back on that when he was waiting and you took him back in the house from his car what worked about that plan and what might you change if you had to do that all over again Well, we've been in that situation, unfortunately, um, a few times at best, uh, the back and forth, the tennis ball effect, if you will. Um, And and we have changed. At at current, he is um, out of treatment. He is on the streets, and we have not allowed him back. And we have made a decision as... Um, as a couple, as Skylar's parents, that that we can't um, let him back in at this time. It's a boundary that we've set, and it's not something that we've tried before, um, at least to any success. Mm-hmm. One of us always kind of caves, if you will. Right. So at this point, we are distancing ourselves. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I don't know that I'll be able to do it day by day. It is a day by day attempt for me. Yeah. I try to stay busy. Um, but we have elected to try something different because what we've done in the past has not worked. I like the fact that you said that because you are bouncing like a, a ball back and forth. And you said something yeah. interesting when you said, you know, first we try to fix it and make the things happen to have him not use heroin anymore. And then we have tough love and we throw mm-hmm. him out. Well, there's actually a balance. And that's where, you know, some support comes in to help you learn what is that balance because we do want it to stay attached Right, because that way we do have more influence, but we need to take care of ourselves. And that's where the boundaries come in. And boundaries are not necessarily tough love. The boundaries are, Skylar, if you're using, you're making the decision not to come home. But Tyler, if you're not, then you're welcome to come home. It's your decision. And I think your husband said that, I think maybe episode five, and I love that he said that. Like, this is your decision. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry you chose this. And it's really important to put the ownership on Skylar so he can't point fingers at you or somebody else and start taking responsibility for what he chooses, the behaviors he chooses, because he then chooses either the rewards or consequences depending on that behavior. Absolutely. So you mentioned being unified, and that, gosh, in my experience, that's sometimes really, really difficult. For me, it was. It sure is. Yeah. Um, that's, right. That's and sure. and I think that addiction um, does its best to attempt to destroy any type of unification you may have. Um, so I've seen over the years Skylar kind of playing on my heartstrings, of course, um, but he's he's pretty good at manipulating his father as well. and. And so, you know, we almost kind of take turns of, of who's going to give in. Um, but it, there seems to be one of us that's continually strong. Um, and and I, I just can't even tell you 
how I'm still married. Um, my husband obviously loves me a lot for some of the things that I've done um, in the spirit of fixing, helping, aiding, or supporting, which was um, not helping at all in retrospect. Yeah. So in my groups, we do a lot of working with parents who are on completely different pages. And that unity or lack of unity that you're talking about is so destructive, not only to the marriage, but to your own self. And then, of course, it allows um, your son, the person with substance use disorder, to get in there, put the wedge, and work the parents, because they're very, very smart kids, right? And um, so what do you think you can do, not going back, but looking forward, how can you and Rod... Um, you know, stay united and support each other? We have um, just recently made a verbal agreement that any decision as it concerns to Skylar will be discussed with a third party. And that third party is some counselors and support groups and that we would seek the advice of these folks and even peers that are in our same positioning for some support groups that we are attending together. We've made that decision that we would take that to these folks, listen to their advice, and then come back together and discuss it before we made a decision, which is hard. Oh, but that um, is when, fantastic. When Skylar is calling in the middle of the night going, can I have $5? Well, I can't wait until the Thursday support group to discuss that mm-hmm. with them. So it's not cut and dry. Like Do you I have to answer that phone call? But um, my phone stays on silent 100% mm-hmm. of the time. And, and there's reasons for that, too, okay. that I've learned over the years, because I will get phone calls at 3 a.m. Right. So, um, yeah, we have been working very hard. And honestly, within the last month, have we started working hard on setting those boundaries and remaining unified in our and at least our delivery of um, those boundaries to Skylar. Well, that's fantastic. I congratulate you because I do know what a challenge that is. The other thing I just might want to mention is it's always okay to be transparent with Skylar and say, you know, we have have our own support group because we are in recovery. We are learning to deal with this Mm -hmm. and to take care of ourselves. And, um, And it's okay to say to them, we can't answer that question right now. We'll get back yeah, to you. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That's a that's a great piece of advice that I appreciate. So one thing that I've observed from the people that I've talked to that are in long-term recovery, their recovery coaches and the peers just were instrumental in their success. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think we all know that this disease is a disease that, that – uh, provokes self-isolation. I mean, that's a symptom of the disease, actually. Definitely. And and so that stands between and stands at odds of them building those relationships. So it's really um, not uncommon at all for people to want to recover and kind of do their own program in isolation. So yes. I, I, I guess my question is, gosh, you know, we saw some of that demonstrated over that weekend there where Skyler, before going to treatment, he wanted to do his own program. And we really don't see peer, uh, you know, peers in recovery, recovery coaches and things like that coming coming into play here. Um, in, in the background, though, is that happening a little bit? It is happening. It's happening all over the United States. Is it happening directly with Skyler um, at the current moment? No, it's not. And you know, my opinion is it's hard to hear what people have to say when you know they're right, but you don't want to take the steps to follow their advice. 
you know, Skylar's infamous, and I think it's quite common um, for wanting to take his own approach because it's easy, right? But where's that approach getting you? And we've talked a lot with Skylar about this in the past. You know, your approach isn't working, and, and only when you totally submit to the disease um, that you are powerless, which is step one, right, yeah. um, are, are you going to be able to begin to get well? Until you admit that you're powerless, I'm not sure you have the ability to even start to get well. So this is um, something that is really hits close to home because I observed that in, in my son and Sam. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't recognize that until it was too late. So I, uh, I applaud the fact that you've noticed that and, and you recognize that. I mean, that's, that's another thing that, you know, many in your position are not going to recognize that. But it's good that you notice that that's a red flag, that doing mm-hmm. his own program isn't, you know, you, you get out there, you get talking to people. Those that are successful, they're surrounded with a lot of people that are successful. Right. And oftentimes they're further up what I call that mountain of recovery than they are. And they right. help them along one another. But you know, Greg, that is true with folks such as myself as well in pure recovery and coaching and listening to others who have been in my shoes. I had to admit that I'm powerless over Skylar's disease as well, which I keep trying to grab back. And you know what? Tomorrow I might try to grab it back again. But until I totally submit, release, and let go, I can't begin to heal and get well. So that's what I'm battling on a personal basis. I asked Jen if her appearance on the trade had had an impact on other families. Um, I hope so. I, I just received an anonymous Facebook private message the other night that said, you know, thank you for your participation in the trade, and, and it really helped me. And it kind of it kind of surprised me, to be honest, when I started talking about doing the trade or thinking about doing the trade. I said, you know, I just want to help one person. If I help one person, it will be worth it. But I didn't realize the impact of that, those words until I got that message. And I just thought, wow, I did help somebody. I don't know how, but you know what? It, it helped. And um, I currently work in a recovery support organization um, in Atlanta, and I attempt to help people um, enter into and remain in recovery. But more importantly, it is a peer-run um, recovery center. So um, I am not a part of that because I am not a peer. I'm what we call an ally. Um, so I do a lot of paperwork and I do a lot of fundraising. Um, and, and I do some speaking to parent groups about what I have been through in my own lived experience. Um, so that's what I do every day. I enjoy it. I am attempting to um, step back when when the, the whistle rings, if you will, and it's time to quit work. I'm trying to incorporate more self-care because, honestly, I would sit here and work until 10 o'clock at night and be totally okay with it. So I want to dig into a uh, topic that at times can be just a little bit controversial. And um, so, but as a mother of two sons that are addicted to, to heroin, what are your views on harm reduction tools such as the needle exchange, Narcan, fentanyl test strips, or even SIFs, safe injection facilities? I don't have a lot of background knowledge of safe injection facilities. Um, I feel like if it is saving lives, um, which I've heard that it is, I haven't done a lot of research, but if it is saving lives, then I'm not opposed to it. 
Um, Narcan, I can't tell you how many times mm -hmm. Narcan has brought Skylar back to life. He has aerodized in my home. Um, so I'm thankful for Narcan, and I am 100% on board with the distribution of Narcan um, to save lives. Uh, needle exchange, you know, Atlanta right now is number one in the U.S. for AIDS, and that could be, and, and certainly Hep C is on the rise as well. Um, so I'm all for needle exchange because, you know, I'd rather have them have clean needles than dirty needles and spreading disease. Amen. Yeah, uh, I, I feel just the same way. I, I, I feel yeah. like these, you know, we know as parents that um, we're out of control. We can't control them. We can't make them right. not use. So what can we do? Well, we can surround them with as many tools as possible so they're safe when they use. Absolutely. So that we get maybe one more day, one more opportunity to help them into to treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Jen, it was so, so very courageous to put your family story on display for the entire country to witness and learn from your successes and failures in getting, in fighting this battle. And I, I mm -hmm. want to know, if you had to do it all over again, would you appear on the trade? Oh, yes. I've, I've already contacted the executive producers and, and the film crew that, that I feel like are family at this point. And I said, let's do season two. There's more to be told. Um, there's more to be covered. There's more story out there. Um, so I absolutely would do it again, and I'm ready for season two. Yeah, fantastic. So before we wrap things up, let's just take a minute to talk about the way forward with Skyler and Avery and their recovery. What's today's mm -hmm. plan uh, for, you know, as parents? What's, what's the plan? The plan for Skyler is that we are working hard on our unification in the gift of desperation. We have not tried that before, and I feel that if we do not try something different, we're going to continue to get the same outcomes. So we have to try something different. So we are attempting to give him the gift of desperation to enter into recovery. Um, with Avery, he uh, is in a six-month program in South Georgia, about three hours away. Um, and doing amazing. Uh, we cannot talk to him right now. We write letters and send care packages. We won't be able to speak to him for about 30 days. Mm -hmm. Jen, can you tell me a little bit more about the desperation aspect that you're talking about? The gift of desperation. Gift of desperation. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> the gift of desperation, in my opinion, is um, not providing the comforts of life. Um, I don't think that anyone would make the decision to get help and to fight the beast, if you will, um, if they don't have to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you hear about rock bottom. I don't know if there's a rock bottom. I hit my rock bottom a long time ago. I don't know what Skylar's rock bottom is. Um, I don't know what the, what the end result is. I don't know what God's plan is. I know there is a plan. I'm not sure it will be the one I want, but... At the rate we were going, it was not working. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the tools it takes... we were providing and the enabling and the giving in and the loving Skylar to death, which is what Rod says that I do very well, um, it's not working. He, he's not getting well. So we had to try something else. So it's, it takes parents a long time to understand that. So I'm glad to see that you've gotten to that point to understand that what you're doing has not worked, and you've already mentioned that. Right. 
So once again, I want to applaud you for your strength and courage in bringing your story forward in such a broad scale. Do you have any final comments for our listeners? Well, I know um, in the trade, I continuously said where there's life, there's hope, and I um, truly believe in that. Um, The thought has started to cross my mind, and, and I don't know how people will take this, but you know, there there may be peace and death. I, it, that may be the way he escapes this battle. It's not what I want, um, but as long as he's alive, I have hope. I'm joined now by Richard Confer from Recovery Works in Dayton, Ohio. You may recall Richard because we uh, we met him in episode two of the trade. So, uh, Richard, welcome again. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to have you here to tell that story. Yeah, it's. Um... It's, it's been a journey. I, I, addiction is um, like no other disease, obviously, we, for those who've been touched by it. But, uh, yeah, since the trade was filmed, um, Brittany, who was in uh, episode two, struggling, um, she just celebrated uh, 13 months of sobriety on the 17th of this month. Congratulations. That is just tremendous. That is fantastic. I'm very happy for you and very happy for your family. Let's go back into the background for Brittany and just do a quick refresh in terms of what uh, what everyone saw in episode two, what they witnessed there, and then uh, bring us forward to, uh, to, to today. Okay. Um, in episode two, Brittany was struggling. She uh, was at home for a period of time. Um, she was struggling with staying away from old people, places and things. So that always let her back out. Uh, so she had relapsed. Um, she wasn't allowed to stay at home. And despite knowing that she wasn't clean and wasn't able going to be clean, I was trying to keep her as safe as possible and not be literally on the street in the, in the cold while we tried to get her into some treatment somewhere. The fortunate thing happened. She ended up picking up uh, some legal charges. Legal, actually. Why, why was that fortunate? She actually got arrested um, because got her off the street. Yeah. Uh, with the opiate addiction, the fentanyl addiction, the heroin addiction, uh, the toughest part is people go through withdrawals, and you know they the psychological effect, the pull on people. They don't want to go through that sickness. So they continue to use, even though the drug's killing them. So obviously, in most cases, even though occasionally they they get some stuff in the county jail as well, she was uh, put in jail. Uh, She started to detox and get sober. And uh, by the grace of God, they uh, uh, knew she was uh, had a heroin problem, a drug problem, and um, forced her into some treatment. And she went into some... patient treatment for a while and then she was released uh, to recovery works to continue her treatment and uh, mental health help and you know stay on the Vivitrol shop so being detoxed and you know the Vivitrol maintenance program helps curb the drug craving of opiates and also works on alcohol Mm. uh, and you know the proper medical treatment and obviously the most important piece to all this is uh, counseling because the drug is a symptom of the problem, as, as we know, and if we don't treat the underlying problem, you know, we're going to return to drug use. So we continue. She, she worked really hard. She's 
been through a lot of treatment programs, relapsed multiple times. But, you know, as her father, I never would give up on her. I don't give up on people in our treatment center, you know. I understand what it's like to struggle with addiction. Um, so we battled through it, and she did a lot of work, continued to take action, and so far, so good. Tremendous. I, I tell you, I just find your story so incredible because, you know, as a parent, I can relate to this, you know, finding yourself in crisis mode and looking for places to send your child uh, to get them the help that they need and being frustrated because you can't find a real good fit. And you did something that nobody does. I've never heard of that before. You decided that, you know what, it's not out there for my child, so I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to create Recovery Works, and that's what you did, and that's just unbelievable. Yeah, we uh, – that began in uh, – the thought process came in mind around 2008, and it was real frustrating with both my uh, daughters started str- – began struggling with opiates and heroin, and they knew they were having problems and couldn't stop, and it was before I was in the field. <clears throat> and I, I decided I was like, at some point in time, I'm going to go back to school. Uh, I'm going to get my counseling licensure, and we're going to put together a treatment center, and we're going to do it to the best of our ability and um, get people help when they want it, meet them where they're at, and um, cut out the long, drawn-out process to get treatment. You know, people that are sick, it's hard enough, um, you know, for them to want to get help, to, to stay in the battle. And if you make it difficult, you know, most of the time people aren't going to follow through. Yep. So recovery works was created out of all the frustration, all the failings, all the things I seen when I got into the field and going through it with myself and with my daughters. And, uh, we put it together with the, the thought is that, you know, people are sick. We're going to help these people until they can walk again. And uh, we're not going to make them wait for services. So your daughter, Brittany, was one of four people featured in the trade. Uh, the others were Skyler, John, and Andrew. Skyler was just about ready to start a program with a uh, recovery facility down in Atlanta called The Extension. And in fact, he, uh, uh, after the episode ended, he did end up going into treatment there, but very quickly, within a couple of days, he washed out. And today, he's still out there using. Um, John has, uh, was wandering through the episode in episode three and just trying to make it day to day with no real plan to stop. And he was enabled by all of those around him. And to this date, as we understand it, nothing has really changed in his status. Andrew in Akron Um, He went through one year of a supervised program, an excellent drug court program, and he relapsed as soon as he was no longer under the supervision of the courts. So out of four people, only one of them is today in recovery and doing well, and that's your daughter. Yeah. Really by the grace of God um, and her willingness to do things. And, you know, like I said, with recovery works um with the clients that come here we uh we really especially with the opiate addiction we really try to utilize the vivitrol medication in conjunction with therapy um we pick people up from jail once they're detoxed we bring them right to the treatment center get them right get them shot get them the shot before they hit the streets 
get them right into treatment. We get them into sober living, whatever we need to do um, to separate them from their prior environment. And we get busy working. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. You and I talked about that uh, prior to this interview, and I'd like you to kind of start from the beginning from this this pro you know about that and talk about that program. Um, so we're kind of shifting gears here, and you had on your for the most part. I was asking you from your to put on your dad hat to begin with, and now let's let's move over in your professional hat because you've got a couple of programs that are working and working well through Recovery Works, and one of those is this Grab Them As Soon As They're Released From Jail program. So tell us about that. Well, we work with the criminal justice system, and a lot of the judges and probation officers in our community, fortunately, have worked really hard to work with us and understand addiction. And, you know, they go by our recommendations, and when people end up in jail, they, they offer them treatment if they're willing to come to programming and, you know, follow our recommendations, which if you're a, a heroin user or opiate, have an opiate addiction, obviously our recommendation is going to be uh, counseling and MAT, which is medically assisted treatment in that uh, majority of the time, if not all the time, comes in the form of Vivitrol, which is the most successful medication in our experience at fighting the cravings, blocking the effects, and it allows people's minds to calm in order them to get the message of counseling, begin to work on themselves so they're not out chasing the high, chasing the drug any longer. So what we do, what we worked in conjunction with the court system is we go in, we do a screening find the person appropriate for uh, that program, and then we arrange for them to be released to our custody, and then we have someone go to the jail. The jail um, releases the person to us with the intention of bringing them straight to treatment. We bring them straight to treatment. We get them used to the facility right away. We introduce people. We make them feel as comfortable as possibly can coming out of jail. Um, we get them over to our medical center. They meet with the doctor. They get a Vivitrol injection. And then, obviously, they meet with case management. And if we if we can get them into some housing, we'll get them into some housing if needed. And with our housing programs, you know, we provide transportation to them from group every day. And that is one of the, that is the most successful program we have. Um, how many people? Do you have some stats on that, Richard? Uh, people that yeah, you've put through yeah, it, how long it's been in place, and what the, yeah. what the track record is? We've been working on the Vivitrol program, and obviously it's increased with uh, the popularity of our center. Uh, we have, we probably administer over 100 Vivitrol shots a month. Obviously, some of those are first time, uh, but we have a lot of people uh, staying sober on Vivitrol. And as long as they're attending counseling and coming to functions and group and meeting with their counselors and working to change, it's very successful. We have, we're an intensive outpatient program, which intensive outpatient is more group, more group time a week. It's a minimum of nine hours a week, three days a week. But the phase down part is usually about a four month after successfully competing intensive outpatient program. It's usually about four months of sobriety, maybe six months. Then they work their way into our other program, which is non-intensive outpatient, which is two days a week of counseling, two hours at a time with an individual. 
And we probably have in the range of about 120 out of our 300 clients that are active with us in that program. So that means we have about 35% of the facility has some substantial sobriety um, and recovery. Now, does that mean it's perfect? Does that mean there's not relapsing? No. But what we do is we pick back, pick right back up and get busy again if that does happen. We have a lot of people that have come through a program multiple times and now they get it. We've had some people graduate after going back and forth into the jail program on multiple times, just completed the program celebrating over a year of sobriety. Um, the one thing I've learned in my own personal experience and being as a dad is if this is the big biggest thing I can do is we're not going to give up. That person's willing to continue to try to be sober, willing to continue to try to fight. We're not going to give up on somebody. Any final words of hope for our listeners out there? You know, recovery is possible. Um, it's not easy. It does take work. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, people do have to suffer, unfortunately, their natural occurring consequences. And pain is the most powerful motivator for someone. Um, it, and it's very difficult as a parent to watch your kids suffer. But like I said earlier in our interview, um, Brittany got arrested. I was relieved because I knew we had a chance at that point in time. I knew we had an um, connections in the court systems that they would hold her, they would detox her, and they would recognize that there was a problem and force treatment, at least initially. And that's not always bad because sometimes after a period of time, people are like, my sobriety is worth it. And, you know, even though I got here through the court system, even though they made me come, this is much better than the way I was living. So sometimes some things that seem to be the worst things that could happen to somebody, which is like locked up in jail, because the last thing in the world we want is our child to be locked up in jail, turns out to be the best thing. Thank you for joining us for this concluding podcast of our five-part series on the Showtime original program, The Trade. The mission of our series was to link programs that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic to the stories told through the eyes of family members with loved ones struggling with heroin addiction. The Trade follows the lives of four heroin addicts, all in active use cycles as the series begins. In episode one, we met Skyler and his parents, Jen and Rod who try everything to help their son in his recovery. In the concluding episode of the series, Skyler's out of options, his family has kicked him out, and he's living on the streets. He decides to get help. After the show wraps, he, he does, in fact, get into uh, rehab. But within days, he drops out. He now lives somewhere on the streets of Atlanta. These are like all the people that have died recently. Doug, John, Kaveh, Nick, Washburn. Lauren, JP, Zane, Sarah, Joey, Chico. Chico? Yep. We just heard a clip from episode three of John naming off the dozen friends he has lost recently to overdose. John lives mostly on the streets of Atlanta, living day to day through multiple use cycles, surrounded by people that enable him to keep using. He comes across as a resourceful, compassionate, amiable person who's trapped in a cycle of addiction without the support system or wherewithal to escape. 
His status has not changed since this story was profiled on the trade. In episode four, we meet Andrew, who's on the run from the law at the time the episode begins. We watch as he prepares to give himself up and ultimately enters Judge Teodosio's drug court program. Andrew did graduate from the drug court program, and soon after his court supervision was lifted, he began using again. He now lives on the streets of Northeast Ohio. In the second episode, we meet Brittany, who at the time was actively using while living in a hotel paid by her father with the understanding that she would be detoxing there. Ultimately, Brittany is busted for possession and enters into a court-supervised recovery program. Today, Brittany has reunited with her children and just celebrated her 13th month of recovery. Just 25% of the people that we met in the trade who were struggling with heroin addiction got enough recovery time in to allow their brains to recover. And even though it's a small sample size, it's important to note that a 25% long-term recovery rate actually would be an improvement over today's success rate nationally. The disease of substance use disorder is self-isolating. Many people, including my son, attempt post-rehab recovery through their own program, convincing themselves and everyone around them that they're in control of their recovery and missing out on the opportunity to build those vital connections to help them through the highs and lows of recovery when their damaged minds rationalize actions that lead them back down the path to using again. A common theme of hope was voiced throughout the interviews in this podcast series. Beginning with Pagan Harleman, Jen Walton, and Richard Conford, guest after guest said, if they're still here, there's hope. There's always hope. In more than 200 interviews that I've conducted on the opioid epidemic, the most profound thing I think that I've learned is recovery does not happen alone. It takes a team. Those in recovery need a strong support system to have any chance of recovery. What that looks like may be different for everyone, but all those that I've met who are in long-term recovery have one thing in common, a team of many people from recovery coaches to family, peers in recovery, and the list goes on of people that are all connected with one goal in mind, recovery with purpose. We would like to thank Showtime, trade executive producer Pagan Harleman, our PR liaison Cassidy Aquino, and the families who courageously put their stories out there in conversation with us for making this podcast series possible. To learn more about the guests in this series, including contact information, go to cover2.org slash the trade guests. We close our series with a song from my friend, emerging country music CMA award-winning artist, Shane Runyon, and his hit song about compassion, forgiveness, and recovery. It's called Tattoos. Walking through the parking lot to the grocery store I saw a woman walking up I smiled and grabbed the door But she won't look me in the eye That don't come as no surprise today I'm damn near covered head to toe With ink I picked up on the road And a couple of that I got done in the pen And I see the way they look away When I come walking through You wouldn't 
think I'd feel a thing, but sometimes I still do. But I promise that these old tattoos haunt me more than they scare you. But I'll still wear 'em proud every day. These old tattoos remind me of the sins the good Lord washed away. Washed away. This one here's the very first. I got it just fourteen. I got it when my nana passed. The only one that cared about me. And after that, all I had was the bottle and cocaine to feel love. So on that day, I hit. Just a lost and wandering soul, and painted that whole journey on my skin. And I see the way they look away when I come walking through. You wouldn't think I'd feel a thing, but sometimes I still do. But I promise that these old tattoos haunt me more than they scare you. But I'll still wear 'em proud every day. These old tattoos remind me of the sins the good Lord washed away. Most were done with the smell of whiskey on my breath, and even though I was numb inside, I could feel it on my flesh. Most I can't remember, but the one thing I can't seem to forget. I see the way they look away when I come walking through. You wouldn't think I'd feel a thing, but sometimes I still do. But I promise that these old tattoos haunt me more than they scare you. But I'll still wear 'em proud every day. These old tattoos remind me of the sins the good Lord washed away. Good Lord washed away.